0: some guys leave the game they go into coaching for you
1: it's these plants when i see a room like this i look at all the people that these plants can help and will help because it's really the most magnificent plant in the world
2: Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. That clip you just heard was former NBA star Al Harrington showing our David Scott around his marijuana grow house in Detroit, Michigan. After calling it a career following 16 years in the NBA, Harrington hasn't gone into broadcasting or coaching. Instead, he's leading the charge of NBA players investing in the rapidly growing cannabis industry, Harrington isn't just thriving in the space and watching his profits grow, but in the process, he's aiming to help others. His goal? To cultivate a generation of weed millionaires in Black America who can seize on this business opportunity and then reinvest significant wealth into their communities, communities that traditionally have been ravaged by the drug trade and the criminalization of marijuana. On today's podcast, you'll hear David Scott's latest Real Sports report on this subject, and you'll learn that Harrington's vision is not his alone. In fact, a growing number of NBA players are cashing in on this green rush while also working to encourage greater diversity in the industry. After David's piece, we'll be joined by Al Harrington to discuss how his business ambitions took shape, how his experience in the NBA convinced him of marijuana's medicinal benefits, and what he makes of the NBA's ongoing prohibition of the drug among players. But first, here's David Scott's latest Real Sports report.
0: For 16 years, Al Harrington worked the NBA hardwood, dunking and rebounding his way to nearly $100 million in career earnings in the sport he loved. But now, he's working in an entirely new field, tending to a new passion that could be even more lucrative, legal cannabis. Some guys leave the game, they go into coaching. For you, it's these plants.
1: When I see a room like this, I look at all the people that these plants can help and will help because it's really the most magnificent plant in the world.
0: This is Harrington's marijuana grow room in Detroit. Just one piece of a larger enterprise he started at the tail end of his basketball days, just before the legal cannabis industry exploded.
1: When I did this 10 years ago, it wasn't popular. So I really took a risk. But I took a risk because I felt like the opportunity that was in front of me was an opportunity that was way bigger than anything I've ever done in my life. And now,
0: having gotten in on the ground floor of the new green gold rush in America, Harrington's in a position to cash in big time.
1: How many dispensaries? One dispensary opened, and we're about to open up four more. Growth facilities? We had three growth facilities. How many employees? Just under 100. Total revenue? Total revenue this year should be about $26 million.
0: But Harrington isn't the only former NBA player looking to add to his fortune by becoming a marijuana mogul. Matt Barnes has also based his second act on pot, a drug he enjoyed during his playing days.
3: I was someone who smoked before I played an NBA game, someone who smoked after games. It was just really a part of who I am and my lifestyle.
0: Now, Barnes is promoting his pot lifestyle in a popular podcast and TV show called All the Smoke, where he's getting paid handsomely to deliver unvarnished opinions on NBA issues and all things cannabis.
3: What are your uh, top five snacks when you're high?
0: And many of Barnes' guests on the show are yet other former NBA players who, yes, are also now in the weed game. Like Paul Pierce, who's developing a line of pot products called Truth, which was his nickname during his playing days, and Chris Webber, another Hall of Famer, who's heading a fund worth one hundred million dollars with the sole purpose of investing in cannabis businesses, and of course Al Harrington himself, the Godfather of the movement.
3: You're doing some amazing shit across the board, man. So I just want to congratulate you, man. It's, it's, it's good to be to see you. You know, I mean? I'm looking up to you in this space because I'm in the space as well.
0: The trend seems to reflect the fact that marijuana is deeply ingrained in the culture of the NBA. Harrington says its use is
1: overwhelming. I believe eight out of every ten players use cannabis in some shape, form or fashion.
0: So prevalent is the use of the drug across the league that, according to Matt Barnes, nearly half of the NBA's players at one point tested positive for marijuana, quietly landing them in the league's internal drug penalty program.
3: I kind of knew the guys running the program and we were just kind of talking one day and I was just like, you know, how many people are in this program for cannabis? And he's just like, a little bit over 200. And I was like, what? 200 of the 450? Right, of the 450 (laughs) players in the league. And it's just like everywhere from superstars to rookies and everybody in between. I'm just like, it it blew my mind when I heard that.
0: For some players like Barnes, who began using at age 14, marijuana has long been a part of their lives. Others, like Harrington, actually avoided the drug for years. That changed for Harrington one day in Denver, when he witnessed his grandmother Viola, who was 79 and going blind from glaucoma, try cannabis as a last resort cure
1: for her eyes. So she does it, and she hits it like the first time, and she just blows it out her nose, right? So I look at her, <laughs> and she hits it again, blow it out her nose third time so I look at it, i say, grandma <laughs> i was like you sure you never smoked weed before because <laughs> i was expecting her to like cough and then, came a little too naturally yeah, yeah. and her eyes started getting a little glassy and uh she hit it one more time and i was like all right grandma i think that's enough
0: after leaving viola alone for 90 minutes harrington returned and found her reading her bible
1: i'm like grandma how you doing and literally, she turned around, and she was crying tears. She was, like, bawling. And she was like, I'm healed. She said, you know, I haven't been able to read the words of my Bible in over three years. Mm-hmm. And I said, what? And she was like, everything is so bright. Like, every, I can see again. She's like, God gave me my sight back. Wow. Seeing cannabis cure it and watching her cry, she made me cry.
0: Inspired, Harrington began using marijuana, too, as medicine for his body which was aching from a long career that included 14 surgeries. He instantly became a pot convert and decided to launch a weed company, which he named Viola, for his grandmother. That was 10 years ago. Ever since, he's been getting other NBA players to invest in cannabis with him, beginning with his former teammate, Wilson Chandler.
1: He's my very first investor. The very first? The very first. Sometimes it starts with one. Then it went from Wilson to Kenyon Martin, from Kenyon Martin to J.R. Smith, J.R. Smith to Josh Childress, to Ben Gordon. This is a brotherhood.
0: Soon Chandler will be opening his own dispensary with Harrington's help. His company is the big brother, so I've had him and his
3: team behind me you know, the whole way.
0: Of course, Harrington and his disciples have more in common than just their NBA lineage and an interest in marijuana. They're also, like much of the league, black. And many of them say they want to use this new industry to help the black community.
1: My mission is to create 100 uh, black millionaires you know, through cannabis. And you know, 100 black cannabis millionaires. Correct. You know, it sounds
0: so, ambitious. You, you, you think it's possible?
1: I definitely think it's I know it's possible. There's different layers you know, to this onion for sure. But one of them that's at the core of my heart is diversity in the cannabis space.
0: But diversity in cannabis ownership has been limited so far. As a recent survey found that just 4% of pot businesses are black-owned. Fact is, it's an industry with very high barriers to entry, including the often prohibitive costs of building grow facilities, opening dispensaries, and securing licenses to do it
1: all. It's very, very, very expensive to participate in the cannabis industry. And a lot of our people just don't have those resources.
3: That's why we have to do our part as people who've been able to make a little bit of money to continue to use our resources and our platforms to help our people get in this space.
0: Harrington and Barnes say that black ownership in the pot business is a matter of justice, given that when marijuana was widely criminalized in America, it was the black community that felt the impacts most severely. For years, black and brown pot users were arrested and incarcerated at a far higher rate than other pot users in America. For the crime of possessing marijuana
3: people have lost their you know their freedoms over it families have been destroyed over this plant that was really put here to help us
1: it's not only the people that are in jail but it's also all the people in the community that was affected as well our people just really deserve the opportunity to participate so let us play let us sit at the table we want to eat too you're not prepared to settle for just jobs Nah, we want ownership this time around. You know, you think about all the billions of dollars that will be generated in cannabis, the goal is for us to have enough of it that we can go back and reinvest in our community.
0: Communities like Watts in L.A., where illegal pot use and arrests for it, were part of everyday life for more than a generation. That's the world into which Treyana Enriquez was born. Back then, selling weed was a high-risk job, as Enriquez knows, because her grandmother was the kingpin of the local illegal pot market.
4: My grandmother, she actually had had her own marijuana business, and she ran it like any other Fortune 500 company would.
0: Her trade was the kind of center of the family economy?
4: Absolutely. Um, You know, she had several kids that she had to take care of, and... She was very family-oriented, so she would, um, you know, make sure that she had enough to provide for everyone because my grandfather wasn't in the picture.
0: But with the upside came the downside. Enriquez says that when she was growing up, seven of her family members were jailed at times on marijuana-related charges. The family also lived in fear for their lives
4: people in the neighborhood knew about her establishment, and they wanted a piece of the pie. So Mm. they would rob us at times. And, you know, at gunpoint, my grandmother was shot through the chest. My uncles were shot. So
0: it did attract violence.
4: It did attract violence.
0: But in recent years, with cannabis morphing into a legal industry, Enriquez began to sense an opportunity to rebuild her grandmother's business, only this time with the support of the law. All she'd need was money and guidance. Fortunately, her husband knew a man willing to provide both, Al Harrington, who's now working with Enriquez to build a dispensary and secure a license to sell marijuana, which is going to cost Harrington about a million dollars,
1: he says. What you've seen here is probably about $200,000 worth of work, but we got another $400,000, to go before it's done. Is it hard for you, Al, to look at this
0: and not see a money pit.
1: I don't see a money pit. I just see a tremendous opportunity. We're gonna sell a shitload of butt out of here. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to walk through there and know that within what
0: a matter of months, it's going to be an active, open business and unlock the key to your financial future?
4: It feels unreal. It's really? like, wow, like to just actually see everything. Coming together and having somebody believe in you and know that you're going to make a difference in people's lives and in the community. It's just like, you know, my grandmother's not here anymore, but Mm -hmm. I get to follow in her footsteps in a sense and do it legally and not have to worry that I'm going to be arrested or somebody's coming to Rob me or something like that.
0: What would your grandmother say (laughs) if she could see what was unfolding She
4: would be so proud. I know she would tell me just, you know, stay stay kind, stay genuine, Mm. stay sincere, and don't take any shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Once Enriquez's store is fully built, assuming the city grants her a final license, it will have a market value of $3 million, with Enriquez owning 51% of it and Harrington's Viola brand owning the rest. In fact, if Harrington can reach his goal and mint 100 black millionaires, he'll make hundreds of millions of dollars himself. There's no doubting the high potential return on investment. But the impact of a legal cannabis trade in a community long ravaged by substance abuse is still open to question. If you're going to put those kinds of resources together to bring business development, economic development to the community, why cannabis? Why not credit unions,
1: you know? Why not a hundred other things that the community needs just as badly? The thing about it is we have to figure out how to generate revenue to do any of that stuff, right? right? And that's where we fall short sometimes is the opportunity. Cannabis is one of those opportunities. Kids, um, many
0: of whom will look up to you and look to your example, and they may see in it license for their own use Mm -hmm. at young ages.
1: Is that an issue for you? Parents have to be parents. I didn't have your child. I understand he looks up to me, I understand I'm a role model, but that's your child. I say that to say, I have very real conversations with my kids. They know exactly what I do. They know exactly why I do it. They understand the benefits of cannabis.
0: There's so many different ways to to go into business, um, to,
3: to help the black community, mm-hmm. uh, why cannabis? Why not? That, that, that's more my question, not, not why weed, like why not weed? It's something that's a part of our lifestyle already, and if we can turn that into a business, if we can turn that into an opportunity to help our brothers and sisters, why not?
0: Barnes says he's now working to grow black ownership in cannabis in his hometown of Sacramento. Meanwhile, Harrington says he's created eight black cannabis millionaires on paper so far. He's got a long way to go to get to 100, but says he's just getting
1: started. This is going to be my life's work. I don't think I ever get to the point where I'm like, ha, I'm done and kick back. I think this is something that's just going to consume me, you know, until I get to the next life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're now joined by former NBA player and now blossoming cannabis mogul, Al Harrington. Al, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So Al, we just heard about the enlightening experiment your grandmother had with cannabis. How did you first experience using marijuana after avoiding it early in your career?
1: Yeah, my first time, uh, it was a peer pressure moment. I was in Phoenix, Arizona when I was playing with the Warriors. We were watching the Clippers play the Denver Nuggets. The West was very competitive that year, and we needed the Clippers to beat the Nuggets so that we could get the eighth spot. And of course, the Clippers were the Clippers, and they lost. So, uh, you know, it pretty much knocked us out. So we get back to the hotel, and everybody just pissed, and they start smoking, and I'm sitting over there, and I'm having my little drink, and we're just talking, and they like, Bro, you smoking today. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. they like, bro, you're smoking today, bro. Like, it's over. We ain't got nothing else to wait for. It's a wrap. So I smoked that day, man. And I'll never forget, man, how paranoid I was after I smoked. And uh, we were supposed to go out that night. I didn't make it out. I was in my room just, like, bugging out, you know? And, you know, I remember sitting in my room thinking, like, they smoke to feel like this? Like, how is this a normal feeling? So that was my first time, you know, smoking cannabis. And for me, i gonna be honest, it was not a good experience, not an experience that I wanted, you know what I'm saying, the first time.
2: All right. But eventually you become a pot convert, right? And then I'm curious, Al, how did you hatch the idea for an actual business plan?
1: For me, it was more about getting through a learning curve and trying to figure out, like, was this a really viable business and how could I do it legally? Because for me, the pressure that it put on me from family, friends, and even my financial advisor, literally my financial advisor, did everything he could to sabotage me starting the company. And then once I just was like, I'm still I'm doing it anyway, he pretty much fired me. <laughs> he was just like, I'm not going to help you launder money. I'm not going to jail. Like, he just couldn't grasp that cannabis was legal or it was going in a position where we are today. Eventually, you know, I decided that I wanted to make an investment. And my first investment was in Colorado in a 10,000 square foot building that I own now. And we're still operating out of 10 years later.
2: You went straight from high school to the NBA. So when and where did that kind of entrepreneurial spirit set in for you?
1: I think it was kind of forced on me because, you know, as professional athletes, when you make it, where you get a business plan every week, right? So you start seeing all these different opportunities and all these numbers, and people telling you if you invest a hundred thousand, it's going to turn into a million dollars. And you start thinking like, okay, well, I want my money to grow, right? You know what I'm saying? I don't. I want to make money. I want to continue to make money. So you know, I would say that's where it started to hatch. Where I just started to look at more deals. But what happened was for me, what really turned me into the entrepreneur was. I got to my second financial advisor. Whenever I would bring him deals, he would always tell me no. And I'm like, bro, you tell me no to everything. He's like, if I tell you no, I'm not saying that that you're wrong about the deal. But if you believe that you should do the deal, you should do some of your own research, your own due diligence and tell me why you should do the deal. You know, and once he told me that made a lot of sense because the deal that I missed out on was vitamin water. It was when it really woke me up where I was like, wait a minute, bro. You can't keep telling me no and look at what's happening. You know what I'm saying? So at that point is when I started to start doing my own due diligence on deals. And then we would have healthy conversations. And he sharp he made me better. And I always say that because he did that and he challenged me, it definitely made me a better entrepreneur.
2: After getting this thing off the ground, to what extent, Al, have you immersed yourself in the science of growing cannabis? How hands-on are you when you're at your grow house in terms of developing new strains enhancing the quality of the product
1: here in the beginning man for sure like we only had one state i was there all the time i was in the rooms listening to music with the plants it's something about those plants that they are really alive like you know what i'm saying like the time energy and effort that you put into it Will result in the best flower or the quality of flower that you're actually going to get. So yes, the science side definitely intrigues me, and I think that that's what's the amazing thing about cannabis is because right now we really only know about two cannabinoids in a plant that has some people say 70 plus, some people say 100 plus different cannabinoids where all these different parts of the plant can affect the human body differently. And as we continue to get more research, and obviously as the federal government come in and start to really break down this plant, I think we're going to unlock so many different ways that the cannabis plant can actually help human beings.
2: You mentioned the federal government. I assume the ongoing discussion around legalization nationwide looms large for your business. Are you constantly monitoring that, and have you gotten at all involved in that debate that's happening in Washington D.C.?
1: Yeah, definitely. Man, I've talked with Chuck Schumer. We talked to Governor Cuomo in New York. I talked to the governor in Kentucky. I talked to Governor Newsom. So, I've definitely done a lot of work in regards of you know talking with the legislators and the lawmakers because what I feel like I bring to the table is that aspect of having multi-state experience, seeing what has went well, what has went wrong, and trying to figure out how do we can have these um, programs in these states more efficiently. And ways that not only will the state make money, but the entrepreneur make money, right? We're doing this because we want to be able to take care of our families and also be able to reach back and help others be able to participate in this space. Because especially from, from a people of color perspective, you know, we are very rare in this space.
2: Are you always looking kind of down the road, Al, at states that maybe haven't legalized yet, but you think legislation might be coming? Are you focusing most of your efforts on states where it's already gone legal and you're trying to grow into those those regions?
1: Well, I'm trying to focus, obviously, on where I am, but it's a lot of people that are in these states that are coming online that are asking for help and asking for guidance and asking for partnership and different things like that. So I think that as we continue to grow the business and as we become better funded or just having better access to capital, I think that we really can turn on this national brand to a higher level, you know what I'm saying? So yes, I'm constantly, I'm the visionary of the company, right? So, yes, I have 10 different products that I want already. Like, (laughs) I have all these different things, but at the same time, you have to understand that things take time. So that's kind of where I am and that's where I struggle, right? It's like, I'm like, now, let's go now. Let's go to the next, you know, because as an athlete, once again, I always say this is why I feel like a lot of athletes when given a chance are really good entrepreneurs, man, because we've always been thinking on our feet, making split decisions. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is kind of how we're bred and in the business world, it's kind of the same thing, man. There's a lot of the same fundamentals that we take from sports that we can apply into the business world that can really help us be successful, in which I feel like gives us a level of experience that people don't actually give us credit for.
2: Why do you think there is now such a keen interest in the marijuana industry among NBA players? I mean, guys could just go open restaurants or broadcast on TNT. Why? Why this flood into the cannabis space?
1: Because I think think the main reason is because most of the guys that are interested in doing it are using it. They're seeing the benefits of it every day. And I'm sure probably 95% of the people around them are actually using it every day, right? And, you know, I think that a lot of the interest probably comes from not only themselves individually, but the people around them. Right. I'm sure they see an interview from me and be like, yo, look at what Al is doing, bro. I can help you do that. Right. <laughs> you know how much I'm a specialist. You know, I know all about the weed. I, duh, 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 you know what I'm saying? So, you know, these guys around them are probably pushing them into the space, too. Like, yo, bro, like, look, it's the beginning. You know what I'm saying? There's not a lot of companies out there. There's not a lot of brands that, you know, that really own significant market share in this country. So, you know, we should go out there and try to do it ourselves. And it's just a, it's a real business opportunity, man. Like, we are literally pioneering a new industry. This is prohibition, you know what I'm saying, before liquor.
2: In 2017, Al, you interviewed the late former NBA commissioner, David Stern, and he said at the time marijuana should no longer be banned by the NBA. Are you surprised that now in 2021, the NBA still hasn't stopped penalizing players for cannabis use? And and when and how do you think that'll change?
1: You know, I think it's right now upon us. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they made some type of announcement this summer saying that they're no longer going to test. Because now it's been two years of them almost suspending the test, and we haven't had any issues. So I think that the players have done a great job because they are definitely using. They're very excited about being able to use. But they've been very, very professional about it, and they've been using it in the right manner, right? After games, when they're on their downtime, it's how they rest and relax. And, you know, like I told David Stern, and this is just the truth, because I've seen it. i played 16 years. Our vice is usually liquor. And I could just remember after games, man, like literally after every game, you know, players in the locker room, one player got a bottle of Ciroc, one player got a bottle of Hennessy, one got a bottle of Patron, you know, under their locker (laughs) for the plane and everything. You know what I'm saying? Just to calm down. But, you know, now, you know, these guys are being able to use something that's healthy, all natural, something that's grown out of the ground. And to me, like I said, it's just a it's a safer thing for them to be able to consume. And it also heals the body. Right, because of the cannabinoids that's in cannabis and the cannabinoid system, endocannabinoid system that we have in our bodies, which allows us to receive all those cannabinoids and be able to benefit.
2: As someone who lived that, does it frustrate you when you see that that stigma still attached to athletes using cannabis? How did you react, for instance, when you saw the story with Sha'Carri Richardson, the the sprinter who was punished and kept out of the Olympics after she recreationally used marijuana?
1: I just feel like. There's more than enough studies around that have now shown that the main stigmas around cannabis have been debunked. Like all of it was lies, right? And when you think that most times, the reason why I was frustrated with Shikari was in the past, or most leagues, it's never been considered a performance enhancement drug, right? It's like, if you smoke weed, normally you're supposed to be like high, off balance, on, on the couch, not motivated, moving slow. So because of that, You guys need to go and review the the rules you know what i'm saying like as you see everything in our lives have evolved right rules need to evolve so i just hope that this what happened to her obviously shines a light and will now make the olympic committee you know regroup after these tokyo olympics and start to look and like you know is there a place where cannabis is allowable for our athletes, because, you know, that's what it's supposed to be about is the well-being of the athletes that are out there competing. And we feel like cannabis is a great way for them to be able to recover.
2: All right, Al, one dispensary, four more on the way, three grow facilities, 26 million in revenue. How big do you see this Viola empire getting?
1: I mean, we're going, we're going with short goals, right? Our first goal is to try to get to $50 million in revenue. So, you know, you just got to take it in chunks, man. I remember how excited I was when we did our first $100,000 month. (laughs) So now I'm like expecting four or five million dollar months, right? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I just say you got to take it step by step by step. But as we grow this thing, you know, we want it to be very organic. We want it to be very real. We want to really represent people that don't have a voice, represent our community. And, you know, obviously be very inspirational and aspirational for other people of color to want to, you know, participate in this space. Because like I said, you know, I think that there's also a lack of participation because a lot of our people just, I would say they almost have a little bit of PTSD from growing up around it, right? We've seen so many negative things happen around. It's just really tough to wrap our head around like, yo, this is a real opportunity that you could do legally and won't go to jail. When you see everybody your whole life go to jail behind it, you know what I'm saying? Then when you think about some of the challenges we have, I'm talking about people of color, We're fundraising, right? Because this industry is very expensive, because banking is not accessible. You know, you have to obviously get money from high net worth individuals just to be able to participate or to people to actually invest. So there's a bunch of hurdles that are in our way that we're trying to figure out. But this is definitely something that we really need to take a stronghold of and try to figure this out because this is generational wealth at risk, you know what I'm saying, for people from our community if we miss the boat on this.
2: And that target of 100 black weed millionaires that you've set out for yourself—you've gotten to eight on paper so far. How's that trending? And how confident are you that you're you're well on your way to hitting that benchmark?
1: I think it's gonna happen, man. You know, because I really think about it. As I continue to grow this business and, you know, as we look for different strategic partnerships, I think that it'll happen, man. And, you know, obviously I gave myself 10 years. And even if it does, even if I get to 70 or 80 in 10 years, that's 70, 80 new black millionaires that we didn't have before. You know what I'm saying? And one of the things that we will require from people that we bring up in our incubator is to pull somebody up behind them. You know what I'm saying? Well, now we take a village approach to really how we actually do this. So I personally believe that, you know, I will get there. But, you know, like everything else, it takes time and a little bit of luck. And, uh, you know, I got both. So I'm just going to try to keep pushing as hard as I can.
2: Well, Al, it's it's great to have you on to hear about all this work that you're doing. We really appreciate you joining us.
1: Thanks, Max. I appreciate it.
2: And Al's story is just part of this month's episode of Real Sports. Also on the new show, Soledad O'Brien examines hunting contests designed to control the overpopulation of animals like pythons and coyotes. In recent years, amidst pressure from animal rights groups, these contests have become increasingly controversial, with some states banning them altogether. Mary Carrillo's newest piece introduces us to Tani Adewumi, a 10-year-old chess champion who overcame intense poverty, fled to the U.S. as a refugee from Nigeria, and only learned the game three years ago, but now dreams about becoming the youngest ever grandmaster in chess history. And John Frankel updates his story on the Utah-based Project Airtime, an adaptive paragliding outfit for disabled athletes. Three years after Real Sports first covered Project Airtime, the program continues to spread the paragliding gospel, giving more and more athletes a second chance at sports. You can catch those stories and all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.